Bob Murphy Show, episode 306. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. Today we're going to be joined by Keith Knight of the Libertarian Institute, who is talking about his new book that the Institute has published called Domestic Imperialism, Nine Reasons I Left Progressivism. And as the title suggests, the theme to this is going to be uh, Keith's starting out as a typical progressive and then what happened to bring him to his current. You're probably wondering how I found myself in this position as an ANCAP. It's a funny story. So that's kind of what this episode is about. I should say, joking aside, uh, if you have him keeping tabs on Keith, uh, his powers in the force grow each time I talk to him. And so he's definitely somebody to keep an eye on. Uh, one last bit of housekeeping or an asterisk, if you will. And I told Keith, I said, I, I feel the need to say something on the front end. And, and you know, he was fine. And, and I'll tell you what his reaction was. At one point in this discussion, Keith is referring to Claudine Gay, the, uh, at this point now, former president of Harvard, who had to step down amidst allegations of plagiarism, and she had some interesting answers when a congresswoman was asking her if uh, someone calling for the genocide of the Jews would constitute bullying on Harvard's campus. So that person, uh, she, in the past, I think it was not when she was actually president. I think it's when she was lower in the hierarchy, but she was there and was made a critical decision in how Harvard was going to handle um, Roland Fryer. And so he was a very celebrated economist up and coming who, as they say, happened to be black and, uh, but had some conservative opinions, let's say, uh, some of his research topics were not maybe what you would expect from someone of his demographic origins. And so Claudine Gay was res- was instrumental in what happened to him. And we didn't, in the, the discussion between Keith and myself, we didn't actually get into some of the specifics. So besides, you know, what I think Keith believes is, you know, really was behind it and I'm not disagreeing with him. But there were allegations, uh, some, uh, I think, like grad students working with Fryer alleged that, you know, he had comments and things that were inappropriate for like a, you know, academic environment. And so I, I just mentioned, I was going to say, and, and Keith, I believe, was, was saying, yeah, he was aware of that and he should have mentioned it. But um, in his view, he went and reviewed some of the stuff and he he didn't think that it was, you know, worth this guy losing his position and everything over that he, he thought that, you know, this was unfair treatment or let's say, uh, unequal treatment that somebody with the correct views in a similar situation, he didn't think that would happen to, I I believe I'm being faithful to what Keith said his extended commentary would be. Okay. I get the point of doing that was just, I wouldn't want any of the fans of this show or Keith's fans arguing with people online and then being caught flat footed because you weren't aware of that element to this whole story about Claudine Gay and what she's been doing in the culture wars the last several years. Okay. So I just wanted you to be aware of that. So again, you're not caught off guard without further ado, let's get into the good stuff. My discussion with Keith Knight, Keith, welcome back to the Bob Murphy show. I appreciate you having me, Bob. Thanks. So I would have already said this in the pre-recorded introduction, but can you explain, so you're managing editor at the Libertarian Institute, so can you explain what, what it is that you do and what does the Institute do? 
The Libertarian Institute is supposed to be this online, all-you-can-get archive of everything freedom-related. So we want people to be able to visit libertarianinstitute.org, go through our search engine, and type in anything they're curious about. Ukraine, minimum wage, agricultural subsidies, Winston Churchill, any of these topics, and get the freedom position on these ideas. It was started by Scott Horton and William Norman Grigg some years ago in hopes of being a sort of center point for everyone within the movement to come together and make sure that we all have not necessarily a unifying message, but a central idea of what libertarianism is, as opposed to, you know, I saw someone on Twitter the other day, libertarianists say that libertarianism is about, you know, thinking that the, the South was right in the Civil War. So it's about having one place where you can go to get the freedom answer on everything. Okay, great. Uh, and uh, we're obviously going to be talking about your book here in a moment, but besides your book, is what else is, is going on? What's, what's cooking at the Libertarian Institute? Well, we just released a book titled Diary of a Psychosis by Tom Woods. This is a 400-page of, that guy. of uh, Tom Woods. Um, basically, he had this email list, and every day or so, he would sort of uh, gain uh, a collection of research from you know people like Fauci, Bricks, Trump, and make mark of what they were doing on all these days, what they were advocating. So Woods will say, here we have Tony Fauci in early of 2020 saying, people at this point should not be wearing masks. In fact, sometimes it could cause you to touch your face more, and that could increase the likelihood of you getting infection. Later, Fauci said masks might uh, have to be mandatory, and then said you might have to wear two. So this is the objective science that took so long for us to hear. It was so gradual that the propaganda was able to seep in, but Woods compacts it all very tightly, just one page after another. It's a very quick read. He's got all the graphs included, which compare uh, s states that have very similar results, even though they follow drastically different policy measures. So that I'm very proud that we recently released. We also, in the foreign policy realm, had a book titled The Fake China Threat by Joe Salas Mullins. And his general thesis is that there is no reason that the U.S. should fight a war for the independence of Taiwan, especially when they're in the midst of fighting a proxy war to stop people in the Donbass region from seceding from Ukraine. So, of course, there's no principle with all these foreign policy issues. So those are the two books we recently released, and that's uh, th that's what we're working on. But you can also find uh, things like the Oklahoma City bombing archive. We have tons of primary documents. You guys for or against? like that. Against the okay, bombing, okay. <laughs> it, a total nap violation, <laughs> but uh, still understanding the mm -hmm. empirical reality of what happened is uh, is still important because no matter the issue, whether it, things are good, well, this is why we need a government to keep things good. Things are bad, well, this is why we need a government because things are so bad. So anytime the propagandists are able to spin the issue in one way to say, see, we need to grow the state. So the Libertarian Institute is trying to keep an empirical history of events uh, like that. Yeah, that's you just reminded me. I mean, so, so that's great stuff. Thanks for that summary. You just reminded me when I was, was I in high school? I think I might have been in high school. And I uh, actually got a – for my local newspaper, but it was a big paper. Like I had a lot, a lot of circulation because I lived in a pretty uh, – it was a town, like, but it was a, it was a big, uh, big one. And, uh, and I actually got a piece in there about – was, there, was there had been a bad plane crash in the Everglades. It was Value Jet was the name of the airline, and then they like, went out of business and rebranded because the publicity was so bad. But it was like with the investigations, the, the inspectors and stuff – were totally like they just didn't, weren't keeping all flight logs up to date and whatever. Like, so they really botched the job. And so somebody had written, like, some op ed columnist had said, you know, in the wake of the value jet tragedy, um, you know, maybe some radical libertarians, you know, are, are trying to scale back government, but the rest of us want the FAA to hire more inspectors or something like that. And so I wrote a thing up saying, like, you know, what what could the government do that would make this kind of person think that they shouldn't be in charge of this? You know what I mean? So it was like, obviously if there were never plane crashes, people would say, yeah, the FAA is doing a great job. Thank goodness. We don't have the free market. It'd be crazy. You know, airlines would be cutting corners to save money and people would be dying left and right. Planes would be falling in the sky. But then when a plane crashes and then the investigation, it's determined, yes, the FAA's own inspectors didn't do the obvious safety checks the conclusion was the FAA needs a bigger budget because obviously they're understaffed. So 
anyway, that you just reminded me of that. Um, so other kids did things like, you know, go on dates and stuff. And that's the kind of stuff I was into. All right. So <laughs> your book is, remind me of the title of your book. It has a provocative cover and I'm blanking on the title. What is it? Domestic Imperialism, Nine Reasons I Left Progressivism. Okay. So uh, what is the premise of that? And then I will, of course, ask you more particular questions as follow-ups. So the premise of the book in the domestic imperialism title is that progressives will proudly claim to be anti-imperialist. It's very wrong for the British Empire to go around the world imposing its will. It's very wrong for the American Empire to go around and impose its will on other nations. So first of all, impose your will is something so vague it could mean anything from free trade, which they consider Mm -hmm. to be exploitative, and it could mean bombing into existence a potential democracy. So notice they don't even differentiate between good ways of interacting uh, with other countries and bad ways. Second, everything they criticize of these uh, domestic interference uh, patterns usually, they will then advocate for the same thing being done domestically. And my argument is there is no difference in principle whether your neighbor is initiating aggression against you or someone in Washington, D.C. or someone in Great Britain. In all of these cases, it's some people claiming the right to rule other people. So they need to get off their high horse. So much of what they have, so much of this confidence just comes from the confidence they have in their position as opposed to having studied things empirically. You could, I guess, say that for anyone in the political realm. But in this case, it's especially egregious because they are constantly claiming the importance of a uh, very strong central government that has to impose its will because you got to keep people in line. Those dumb Southerners, if they didn't have uh, the northern government keeping things in line, well, they couldn't have seceded and they, they are just a bunch of backwards hicks anyways. Well, that is the exact complaint that the British Empire had when it was considering pulling troops out of places like South Africa. It's not like anyone ever said, well, we're the imperialists, so we're the bad guys. Almost all this aggression is justified under the guise of, well, actually, we're helping people, and if we stop helping them, things would be rather chaotic. So the progressive advocates all these atrocities domestically, which they think they're so high and mighty for criticizing in a uh, foreign realm. That is the basis of uh, the title. Okay. Uh, and then you said nine reasons that you you left. So you at one point were a progressive? Yeah, that was uh, how I was originally introduced into politics. Mm-hmm. I'd always go to my grandparents' house in Sedona, and I'd hear them talk about uh, the two groups in America. There are uh, some people who want to give you housing, clothing, food, all this stuff for free, along with health care and a nice education. Then there's other people who are not Democrats, and they want to charge you for these things. So in a world where there are no such thing as costs— it seems pretty clear that you should just uh, go with the side that wants to give people something as opposed to charging for uh, something. And uh, eventually I came across the work of uh, people like Glenn Beck was one of the first Mm. people who said, you know, there's economic discussions to be had about things like the Affordable Care Act. However, there is a line, uh, there is a subsection of this legislation referred to as the individual mandate, and this forces people to buy something whether or not they think it's right for them, even though they should do it. Well, you could also say people should eat healthy, they should exercise, they should have you know a job that they're ambitious at. But just because someone should do something doesn't necessarily mean they should be forced to. So when I heard this, I almost immediately stopped supporting the Affordable Care Act when I was totally on board with the first black president, this is a major accomplishment. That one thing is what stopped me from supporting it. And then it just took me about five years to apply that to retirement programs, education programs, uh, attempts to defend from foreign aggressors. People shouldn't be forced to uh, fund anything they're not interested in. So basically, my whole journey was just five years of no longer having a double standard for people in Washington, D.C. Okay, interesting. So on the Affordable Care Act one, do you remember before you... Uh, abandoned your support for it. Did you know of the individual mandate, but you thought it was fine and it was only because Glenn Beck was really hammering it? Or was that news to you when he told well, you, like you had had no idea that was even part of it? 
had never even heard about it. It's called the Affordable Care Act. Right. It's a plan to make thing a thing affordable right, that you right. need. What, what, where is the downside? That, that That is one of the great propaganda um, techniques that's used. They always say that there is more or less no downside. There's keeping the country safe. There's keeping the food safe. There's making sure uh, you're safe uh, from COVID-19, making sure we're safe from Vladimir Putin. There's no downsides to any of this. What, right now, uh, most, if not all, progressives are in support of funding a proxy war, which is just keeping uh, Putin from taking over Europe. There's no downsides at all. So uh, this is one of the great propaganda techniques that once you see through, once you start asking, what is the other side of that equation, then almost all of it just starts to crumble down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw something. It was on... I think it was on Bloomberg, even though that sounds, but it was, um, it, this was like a couple of years ago. Maybe it was on your radar, Keith, because it was making the rounds on Twitter. It was, it was really funny. So some, so I think it was a woman was on, um, some, like I say, some like financial net network kind of show. And they were talking about some billionaire. It may have been Musk. It may have been somebody. I don't remember who, what, which billionaire it was, but she said throughout this fact, like, you know, and, you know, if we took that person's, he was worth, whatever, $80 billion and divided, that means every single person in the United States, and she threw out some big number, like could be a millionaire or something. And it wasn't just that she threw it out, but like they flashed it on the screen. Like, so like they had ahead of time prepped the people to have that up there. And then, and the panelists were like, wow, that's really makes you think, huh? Da, da, da. And everyone's like, what? No one caught that? And it, again, it was like off by like three orders of magnitude or something. It was crazy how off they were. And so then I, but, you know, after we were done chortling, I realized, okay, if you just were that clueless, I guess you, I can understand why they'd be a progressive. If they really thought all it would take is, you know, one billionaire's wealth and then the whole country are millionaires and that's it. And it's just pure, like, no, I don't want to. I could cure, you know, poverty for everyone on planet Earth, and I just choose not to. I could understand why, you know, they might hit. Again, it would still, in the grand scheme, would still be wrong, but you know, that would make more sense to me if, like, if, like, in reality, there was a hundred quadrillionaire, and he just said, "No, no, no, I'm not giving you guys anything." <laughs> like, I could see why you'd be a progress. So, anyway, I think part of it is just they're so clueless. At least some of these people that. I almost can understand why they have their worldview. Cause like you're saying, if no affordable care act, it's just some people want to give health insurance to everybody at no, and there's no downside whatsoever. And other people just say, no, we don't like, we, we want poor people to suffer. And that's like, if, if that's, you know, anyway. So the case that you're referring to, it was they were citing Michael Bloomberg oh, that's what it was. and yeah. the amount of money that he spent on his campaign. And it was something wild, like $300 million, to which the host on MSNBC said, if we had taken that money and given it to every American, each American could have had a million dollars. The actual answer is the average uh, person would have had about a dollar as opposed okay, thank to a million you. Yes. dollars. It was just shocking. So when you see something like that, you can't think. Well, I guess if I were that oblivious, maybe uh, maybe I could be a progressive. The second case, which was close to that, which um, was on a Twitter exchange, it was a headline that said something to the extent of Elon Musk spent $44 billion on Twitter. World hunger could be cured for something less than $44 billion, to which everyone said, well, this is prima facie evidence that Elon Musk is just a hoarding psychopath. First of all, the money isn't, you know, in a safe mm-hmm. in his house. The money's in banks, it's being invested, it's being loaned out, whatever. Very small amount of it's actually just sitting in the bank. So he doesn't actually have it. What they're referring to is his net worth with regard to all the contracts and amount of stocks he owns in places like now Twitter or X, along with Tesla, along with SpaceX. So all that combined has a worth of however much Elon Musk is worth. So Musk responds to this and says, show me the plan to cure uh, world hunger, and I'll look into it, to which everyone of the left lost their mind. They couldn't believe that he was sort of just dangling this carrot, just wanting to make them jump. How evil. The fact that he had any standards or was questioning at all these experts who said we could cure world hunger as if giving one initial payment, the federal government got something like $6.27 trillion last year alone. And they think there's just a few billion more. A trillion's a thousand billion. 
And they think a few billion more is just what they need to cure world hunger, even though there was something like a 30, 40 percent increase in the uh, in federal expenditures after covid. We should have seen people drastically happier with the state of government from the year 2019 to 2020 or 2021. But you don't see that. The goalpost just keeps moving because they're, frankly, a bunch of entitled, spoiled brats. And this is why you can go almost your entire life. I've been a net taxpayer for 11 years, and I've never once been thanked for being a taxpayer by a cop, a teacher, a politician, any of the public servants. A soldier uh, even counts there. So it creates this sort of entitlement where people are no longer even thankful. They just feel like you're doing the bare minimum by spending a significant portion of your time at work and that money being uh, allocated toward the state. So they feel so entitled that they don't even have to explain their plans for how they're going to stop Putin, cure COVID, cure world hunger, cure housing, give everyone health care. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, saying that we could make health care free, as I say in the book, is equally as ridiculous as saying, you know, uh, don't complain about military spending, Mr. Progressive, because the military's free because government just uh, j- just pays for it. So we could triple military spending and we'd, we'd just be safer. There's no downside. Well, immediately, when it's not one of their pet projects, then they say, well, I guess for every dollar you allocate towards that, it's a dollar you'd allocate away from something else. If you have to increase the money supply, that would decrease the amount of value my dollars in my pocket have. All of a sudden, they gain this skepticism that they never previously had. Yeah, it is, I agree with all that. And, and thank you for the bloomer, because what I had done a, an episode of this podcast on that, and I remember I used alliteration, and it was like so-and-so's uh, Bloomberg billionaire blunder or something like that. And that's why when I was just telling you now a minute ago, I was thinking, was it on the Bloomberg network? But n- no, you're, you're right. Yeah, it, you, you nailed it. That's exactly what, what the issue was. And it, it was so well, it was off by six orders of magnitude, right? Not just the three that I was trying to be generous. And okay. Um, yeah. And again, folks, they, they flashed it up on the, you know, they had prepared it. That was a talking point and nobody on the crew or somebody said, yeah, I think you guys might want to get a calculator out and check that. <laughs> so amazing. Let's take a break from the action folks to remind you that if you like what you're hearing on the Bob Murphy show, it would be great if you gave some support. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute to figure out the details. But hey, this isn't a shakedown. I'm going to do it whether or not you support, but it does help. Thanks, everybody. Let's get back to the action. Um, okay. If we could just circle back, though. So you said that for the main part of your title, domestic imperialism. So again, if I repeat back to you what, what I thought you said, or, or paraphrase, I should say, that this typical progressive uh in general, is very much against imperialism that, oh, no, who are we? We don't have the moral authority to use violence to impose our will on other people who are outside our borders. Um, and so, you know, we, we don't we can't do that. If anything, you know, we should uh, be be taking orders from them or, what, or whatnot, but certainly we can't be bossing them around. And uh, and yet when it comes to their people within their own borders who maybe live in another city, then all of a sudden, oh yes, we have the right to micromanage their lives to tell them how many gallons they can use when they flush the toilet and, and you know, what, what food uh, their kids can eat and, and such and, and the schools and da, 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 da. So um, I guess, can you just try to unpack that a little bit? Like, how is that, how is that possible? And then I guess the follow-up would be, when I was growing up, yeah, it was like, oh, yeah, the hippie lefty liberals who are against war man and kumbaya. And that was kind of the joke, the stereotype. But now I don't know, was it just Trump? But everything is flipped. Like now it's the re- right winger Republicans who are more hesitant to get embroiled in a foreign war, whereas it's the, you know, liberals who are like, oh, yeah, we got this. Take on Putin. He's a punk. And I'm just anyway, I'm throwing a lot at you. But do you want to respond to any of that? So I think this is a common collectivist trait where they can't be universal collectivists because the implication of, you know, consistently applying that might be a little too difficult. So they are just small time collectivists where they are saying that we, the American collective, can justly do X, Y, and Z within 
our borders just so happen to be the borders that the government tells them are uh, super legitimate. But anytime you go outside those borders to any extent, well, then all of a sudden they have all these skepticism in the world. They can clearly see that if Vladimir Putin were to issue taxes on Americans or station troops across America to keep America safe, they would see that as a terrible infringement. They had a fake election interference thing. Imagine if it if he really did just station some troops across America. There's like 2.4 billion acres of land in America. What if we just gave him 1%? Well, because they haven't been programmed to pledge their allegiance to him, all of a sudden it would be the greatest injustice since, you know, uh, I don't know, the Crusades or something, what, whatever historical reference they're on today. So um, that inconsistency just comes as a constant result of pledging your allegiance, being told these are the people you can coerce your domestic population, whereas those other people are off limits. So you do have to grab people with some truth. You have to say, Look, it is really bad, uh, something like Operation Rolling Thunder or Operation Bail Roll, these massive bombing campaigns in Vietnam and Cambodia. You can look at that, and the line they gave them to say as to why that was unjust was not, it's wrong to initiate violence against non-aggressors. The line was, we shouldn't be coercively imposing on them. Well, by that metric, then the Soviets shouldn't be coercively imposing on them, and we should stop the Soviets from doing so. And now the war is actually back to being justified. So until you get to the non-aggression principle, things like self-ownership, then you're always going to be stuck in that circle. So simply, it is a matter of propaganda and repetition. The fact that it's been repeated so many times that these coercers are legitimate in this area as opposed to that other area. That is the main thing that I have come up with as to uh, why they have such a blatant dichotomy, not just the average person on Twitter. All of these academics believe basically the same thing, and it's completely shallow. As far as how they switched, I think um, this gets into the importance of how culture is generally created, where as opposed to being a bottom-up movement, which I think some people generally make the case, my understanding is that culture is changed by this sort of process of blind copying. People see someone, a figure that they are very much in awe of, that uh, they believe is fighting battles on their behalf, that they have some sort of life that they would like to emulate, and they try grasping at portions of their personality, and they slowly incorporate it into their everyday life. This is how people develop accents. Um, because they're in a certain area, they see people talking this way, so they sort of work it into their own way of talking. Well, when they saw, uh, when a lot of Republicans saw someone like Donald Trump taking on all the enemies who have called them stupid, bigot, racist for the last 10 years since, you know, you can remember, they really admired him. And then when he said, what separates me from them is I put America first, and that means not intervening in these uh, wars on terrorism, making friends with Putin, uh, making friends with Kim Jong-un in North Korea. What he really did was he gave them a green light. So first of all, he separated himself from the previous Republicans, like uh, people like George Bush, who had very low approval ratings. So he said he's anti those people mm -hmm. and was so cool in how he was bashing the media who are who these people know, hate them already. He really gave them the green light to support um, uh, things like America first or a much less, uh, to at least not have the knee jerk reaction to, yep, we got to give, uh, the Pentagon a blank check for, uh, this next operation. So that was big. And then the Democrats had to, uh, completely run in the opposite direction because anything Trump says just has to necessarily be false and evil and racist and bigoted and uncaring. So immediately, oh, you want to pull out of Syria? Well, don't you care about the Kurds? I had never heard about this group before from you people, and now all of a sudden they're vitally important. So, um, yeah, it was definitely a reaction to Trump grabbing voters that were completely disenfranchised after decades. So um, that is uh, that, that is my understanding of how uh, those two parties switched. And uh, once Barack Obama got into office, he escalated uh, operations in Afghanistan, had a, another uh, invasion of Iraq bombed countries like Syria, along with Yemen, did not close down Guantanamo Bay. And I think the Libya operation was such a disaster, which he basically admits in his book, A Promised Land, 
that the Democrats couldn't have said, hey, uh, you know this president that we were so hyped up about for two of the most important elections of our lifetime? We were wrong about him because he basically did everything that the military military industrial interests wanted. So that was another reason that they had to sort of cave on this. They couldn't say, hey, yeah, we've been wrong about this. At the back of the book, I cite a uh, research compilation from The Intercept, which says, uh, 90% of people killed in Obama's drone striking campaigns were not the intended target. And to be an intended target, they basically place six degrees from Osama bin Laden. So like any military-aged male who's in a country that experienced radicalism is a potential target. 90% they weren't even on. So uh, in order to basically say that, oh yeah, we weren't completely wrong about this guy and Trump is evil, the left seemed to have completely embraced um, all the things that they had originally opposed, and Trump gave them the green light uh, to be opposed to the deep state, the Pentagon, and the intel agencies, because the intel agencies were certainly after him. They had uh, Hillary Clinton had said, 17 intelligence agencies have confirmed that um, my emails were hacked by Vladimir Putin. She said something like that on the presidential debate stage. It wasn't until June 29th, I think, of 2017, more than a year later, where the New York Times redacted this story and said, actually, it was just the DNI, the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA. It was not all 17. So notice the rest of those agencies didn't come out and say, oh, no, no, uh, former Secretary of State misspoke. We don't want to provoke a potential war with a nuclear power. They just said, well, we're we're going to let her have that. So the intelligence agencies were so against Trump that Trump was willing to call them out, not because he's so good, but he saw it as profitable and saw them as an enemy. So that was probably another reason that he was, you know, framing things in this America first agenda. I think a great lesson that we can learn from that is the same lesson you can learn at the Frederick Douglass Museum in New York. I think it's called the New York Historical Society Museum, is that he didn't say hey, guys, you've been wrong about everything. He said, embrace something that you already believe in, America first. And here is the conclusion that we get from that. Frederick Douglass didn't say, you know, the Constitution's a piece of trash. We should have a totally different system. My understanding is that Frederick Douglass completely embraced the principles of the Constitution and said, these actually lead to a different conclusion. So that is the great lesson I think we can learn from Donald Trump and Frederick Douglass, regardless of what you, Donald Trump's a murderer, he belongs in prison, whatever. Um, I'm happy to say that. But as far as lessons we can extract, it's not telling people, hey, you've been wrong for 30 years. It's you are so right about this one thing. Just find it and say that it actually drags them to a different conclusion. Hmm, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good, good thoughts there. Let me, as you were speaking, I, I, some things were popping in my head. So let me just throw some of these out and see what your opinion is. Um, what's funny, so I, I came of age politically, like I say, like junior high, I, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh. So eventually I got into Glenn Beck, but I was, well, Rush Limbaugh is what got me in because my dad listened to him. And then, you know, and then I, I got into what national review. And then somebody mentioned Henry Hazlitt and then I got that. And then I was, you know, away from conservatism and more into libertarian, you know, free market economics kind of stuff. But, um, it, it is interesting that so because I came from that element, I was primed to be thinking of yay military defense because like you know pro Ronald Reagan and the Democrats were these weak need blah 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 you know pansy liberals who are always wanting to negotiate not be tough with the commies kind of thing. But then I realized as I got a little older and just studied history more, like no, actually the biggest warmonger like you know FDR Truman. LBJ, they bombed the crap out of people. Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, oh, you're right, right. Yeah, good one. And um, and, and in fact, and then I like I was reading something, and, and actually, there's one conservative, like crotchety old guy that was was ex- commenting on this, how like during his lifetime it flipped, and he said, yeah, there was a period when Republicans would would complain about Democrat wars, like that was a phrase they would use on the campaign trail. And, uh, and he says, whereas now, you know, in the eighties or like early nineties, like now we don't talk like that because now it's, it's flipped. So it is interesting how now it's, it's, you know, flipped again, you know, the other way. And of course, like, you know, as we know, there's the old, old school, uh, like what was denigrated as isolationists. Um, but you know, Robert Taft and guys like that. Um, well, let me run this by you. I'm just curious. Do you think as we were talking, I was wondering, okay, is it possible 
that growing up in the United States, we had this just limited sample of the leftist mentality because clearly, I imagine, the communist comrade in the Soviet Union never had any doubts about, oh, gee, does our regime have the moral authority to impose its will on foreigners? So is partly where we're getting this from is that in the U.S. context back like in the 50s, the communists had to basically demoralize Americans to, to conquer the system from within because that was the thing limiting leftism at that point on the world stage was like the old school American Republic. And so that's why they had a campaign of, oh, slavery was the worst, you know, U.S. Uh, chattel slavery was the worst sin in, in human history. And, you know, you Americans were unique in all people of all times to have slavery. That's never existed before in human history. You should feel really bad about that. And you, you're terrible people. And, you know, and just going through all that and, and making them just demoralizing Americans. And of course we can't impose our will on other people because, you know, they're so much noble, nobler than we are. And like, we're the uniquely awful civilization and colonialism is horrible and da, 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 da. But Again, not because the the leftist per se refrains or shies away from imposing his will on others, but because no, in the context of we have to conquer U.S. institutions and get Americans to just you know be completely demoralized, so we can basically infiltrate them and take over. And now that that process is much further along than it was in the fifties, they're kind of showing their true colors, and that's partly so. Yes, the stuff with Trump and everything, I get that, but could that also be more that no now? progressive, you know, maybe communist is a strong term, but hardcore leftists really have much more influence now in all the halls of power in the United States compared to 50 years ago. And so maybe that's not why their, their rhetoric has, has morphed somewhat. And now, oh yeah, maybe the U S government can do a lot around the world for good. And maybe we do have to use our military because, you know, now it's more being controlled by progressives rather than, you know, cold warriors. How do you feel about that? Yeah, the human mind's ability to rationalize uh, things that, uh, that that are contradictory to everything else that they advocate is just amazing. So, uh, yeah, that is most likely the result. Uh, you know, the explicit goal of Comintern or Communist International, the Bolshevik uh, revolution founders, was to have a global totalitarian pro. First, a proletariat uh, dictatorship, and then second was for communism to be global. It was not a nationalist movement. They were very opposed to the National Socialist German Workers' Party. So yes, Comintern had the explicit goal of world domination, which they just framed as world liberation, mm -hmm. even though the Soviets took over, what, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, had troops in Austria— uh, you know, had uh, proxy governments all uh, all over the globe, you know, Cuba, Angola, Afghanistan, they tried as well. So, yeah, once you're in power, then all of a sudden, well, this really is to help people out. Cenk Uger was uh, celebrating one time saying that, oh, well, uh, you know what? Uh, new research shows that whites are going to be a minority in a few years. And I think that's a great thing. But don't worry, wh whites, we're not going to, like, take your rights away or anything. We're just going to help you and give you things like health care. Well, that is the mindset of every single person who commits an atrocity. The uh, thing you said I think is exactly right is they try to find something that's universally applicable and then apply it uniquely on America and then associate America with capitalism. Hannah Cox just had a debate on Jubilee, which is a pretty popular YouTube channel. And the guy said that a central aspect of capitalism is slavery. Even though you have things like the Code of Hammurabi going back 2,000 years before Jesus, which mentions slavery, you have the Code of Ernamu from ancient Mesopotamia, which mentions uh, slavery seven times and uh, things you can and can't do with your slave and punishments for runaway slaves. They uniquely pin this on the voluntary sector of all things. So yes, that most likely is the explanation that now they've they see a lot more of themselves within the state. They justify a lot more of uh, of its crimes. And I think almost anyone would do this. People who are, you know, extremely uh, suspect of Barack Obama having a more powerful government all of a sudden when Trump comes in and pals around with Tony Fauci and expands government power to limits that we just hadn't seen in a very long time. Well, all of a sudden, well, 
this is for the greater good. And well, it's actually a long-term strategy because this is how he's going to take down the deep state. The mind's ability to rationalize when it's in their self-interest to do so is just amazing. And it and it'll always be with us. That's why having a government that people can't disassociate from legally is so dangerous because even the best of people will look for the worst things to justify under the guise of, well, eventually we're going to have the greater good. That's why the free market's so important, where you can't get a dime out of anyone's pocket or a second of their time unless you're interacting with them on a voluntary basis. That's the ultimate check and balance that uh, the progressives need in their philosophy, and it's the one they unfortunately reject. Okay, well, good stuff. So again, we want to give people a taste, but make them want to get your book and, and read it. So can you give us uh, like what's one of the reasons that you that would make sense for to be able just to kind of summarize now that what that made you turn away from it? So let me give you another Barack Obama example, mm-hmm. just because he was the first person you know. I really oh, can came I across can I say something real fast, Keith? Be, be, you um, when you were talking about him and how he, he was people who supported him, perhaps idealist, idealistic leftists or progressives, and then you know, realizing, oh yeah, with the drone and all that. I don't know if this was on your radar, but there was a point, um, you know, when he was, when he was still going through the primaries and it was either going to be him or Hillary, you know, you know, before his first election and uh, before he was even nominated. And he was talking about, I don't know, it may have been Iran. And, and he said something like, these are small countries. There's not a threat to us. And he, and he was like, just trying to say like, what's the big deal? for these countries over there. And then he walked that back the next day. And I, and so like Mm -hmm. some of us who caught that were thinking like, Oh yeah, the, some people took him aside and said, if you want to get this nomination, you don't talk like that anymore. And he said, okay, what else am I saying? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that, because it was just like, is that on your radar? Like, did you hear ever know about that? You know what? No, but I know the general yeah. idea. The, the main thing for people like us was closing down Gitmo, even mm-hmm. though it's not like there's millions of people there. Just the fact that it exists, it's such it, it is in such opposition to the ideas of justice and equality that it's going to take a progressive like Barack Obama, you know, a guy who's going to be tough on Wall Street and tough on the Pentagon as well. So the fact that he never closed that was just so eye-opening, and we didn't get some massive explanation or apology. He had basically blamed it on the Republicans in Congress, Mm -hmm. even though the Democrats ran Congress for his first two Mm -hmm. years, and he could have done it then. But yes, uh, so I'm familiar with the general idea. I don't remember that. Okay, yeah, uh, after we're done here, I'll try to find it, and I'll send it to you. Because it was, like I said, it was great. Like He was just riffing, kind of like how Trump, just from the seat of his pants, and you know some of the stuff is nutty, but because... He's not reading from a script like half the time his ideas actually make sense. And other times it's like, what are you out of your mind? <laughs> but this was the kind of thing where he's just like, these aren't big countries. Why are we afraid of them? I don't understand. And then, you know, like I said, he walked back the next day and yes, these are very serious threats and they're, you know, months away from a nuclear weapon. And, da, 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 and it was like, oh man, somebody got to him. Um, okay. So I interrupt you. I'm sorry. You were going to say that one of the reasons, and you said it was another issue with Barack Obama. So can you, if you remember your, what your train of thought so, was. Uh- so here's how I open up the book. I reference the uh, event. Uh, do you remember the Pulse nightclub massacre in uh, June 12th, 2016? Omar Mateen had pledged his allegiance to the Islamic mm-hmm. State and uh, m- murdered 49 people and wounded uh, 53. So what happened was after uh, this murder, both Barack Obama and Donald Trump actually had the same position on it. Here are Barack Obama's words. He said, This was an attack on the LGBT community. Americans were targeted because we're a country that has learned to welcome everyone, no matter who you are or who you love, and hatred towards people because of sexual orientation, regardless of where it comes from, is a betrayal of what's best in us. I had kind of just taken that because Trump basically said the same thing, that this was the motive and the lesson of the Pulse nightclub massacre is you can't be a homophobe. Being a homophobe is really bad. Sometime later, it turns out Omar Mateen called 911 while he was holding these people hostage in the Pulse nightclub. And it, it's worth noting that the point of terrorism is to amplify a message as opposed to conceal your motives. And here are the actual words uh, from a transcript of his 911 call. You have to tell America to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. They are killing a lot of innocent people. 
What am I to do here when my people are getting killed over there? You get what I'm saying? You need to stop the U.S. airstrikes. They need to stop the U.S. airstrikes, okay? They need to stop the U.S. airstrikes. You have to tell the U.S. government to stop bombing. They are killing too many children. They are killing too many women, okay? I feel the pain of the people getting killed in Syria and Iraq. They need to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. The U.S. is collaborating with Russia, and they are killing innocent women and children, okay? This was clearly a exa an example of blowback terrorism in response to uh, Barack Obama's drone campaign, which according to the Council on Foreign Relations this year, 2016, roughly 12,000 bombs dropped on Syria, roughly 12,000 bombs dropped on Iraq. As I mentioned, The Intercept said there was roughly 90% of the people killed in these drone operations are not the intended target. So this is the main reason I left progressivism is any issue, no matter how complex, they always had to extract a false divide as opposed to a true one. Any libertarian can look at this and say, yeah, it's wrong for the U.S. to initiate aggression against non-aggressors and wrong for people of the Islamic State and people like Omar Mateen to do so. So not having to walk on eggshells and always find, well, who is the white person who I can vilify? Who's the man? Who's the straight person that I can vilify? All of these arbitrary divides I got so sick of that I eventually just left progressivism. Because notice, if you have this fake divide, then you can't get to the central issue, which doesn't really allow you to solve the problem. So if you say, well, slavery is bad because it's wrong for whites to own blacks, well, yes, but that is an arbitrary uh, objection to what's actually going on where one person is claiming to own the body of another. So when they have uh, some of their heroes like Franklin Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson or Lyndon Johnson engage in military conscription, forced labor under the worst conditions where you're much more likely to die than if you were a chattel slave, well, they don't really have a huge objection to this, even though it explicitly says in the current selective service, men ages 18 to 26, if you're a progressive, you might look at that and say, well, that's sexism against men. So now we have to enslave women ages 18 to 26. And it's ages, too. We have to enslave everybody. If that's your approach to things, this fake arbitrary divide that the elites just issue every now and then, well, then you're not getting to the root of the issue. Whereas if you embrace the free market worldview, you can see that forced labor is the issue with slavery. So you could never fall for something like military conscription. So getting to uh, the root of why things are actually wrong was uh, the main reason I left uh, progressivism. You can also uh, use this with regard to um, the racial disparities are almost always front and center with the left uh, Bernie Sanders uh, compared white income to black and Hispanic income to show that there is systemic racism within America, leaving out the fact that Asians actually make 30 percent more than whites on average. Another thing that the progressive worldview can't uh, accurately explain is why black immigrants to America earn roughly 30 percent more than native blacks. Because remember, it, I know that there's a selection process with immigration, but their claim is that the reason the wages are lower is because the domestic employers discriminate against them. So according to this, they discriminate against native blacks, but not immigrant blacks. Or you could have the uh, Misesian worldview that um, higher wages are the result of capital investment and competition and people increasing their skills within the marketplace. There is a big, um, the, another uh, racial aspect of this. Uh, Claudine Gay is now under, you know, some scrutiny for, you know, not condemning anti-Semitism at Harvard. Uh, maybe, maybe not uh, plagiarizing uh, some of her work. This is the president of Harvard. The gr most egregious thing that this woman did was she got Roland Fryer a two-year suspension when he worked at Harvard after he published a paper titled An Empirical uh, it was something to the extent of an empirical analysis of racial differences in police use of force. And he actually looked at the data in 18 cities and had two different staffs look at the data. And he found that there were no disparities among the races when it came to uh, the most egregious example of police use of force, police shooting unarmed uh, suspects. So with this, Claudine Gay took away his academic institution. He had his own uh, little study building. and. 
got him suspended for two years. The closest thing you could come to uh, getting fired if you have tenure at a uh, place like that. So here was a black gentleman, one of the youngest uh, black uh, people to get uh, tenure at Harvard. And he was saying, hey, hey, this whole racial narrative doesn't have to be about race. It could actually be about something like police reform, maybe even privatizing security. This way you don't have double standards. The leftist head must spin when they see something like black officer Michael Byrd killing unarmed white Ashley Babbitt, and they're not even being a trial. Now, you would think that in a white supremacist society, this guy would get like 20, 30 life sentences for doing this. But no, he had an interview on ABC and his uh, career is not uh, in jeopardy at all. So they're constantly using these fake divides. The fact that men are 50 percent of the population, yet 95 percent of those killed by police is a huge gender disparity. But it's no proof of discrimination or sexism among the police force because men commit more violence. We should have that same standard and stop having fake gender divides and uh, false divides of, uh, of any kind and embrace libertarianism. That's what the book is about. By the way, working with the Libertarian Institute, I love it because they let me put a free PDF of the book for anyone who wants it. It's a nice, short, sweet read. Hopefully, progressives will uh, take the time and uh, read a few pages. Yes, and of course, folks, we'll put links to all of uh, these things uh, the show notes page. Okay, we well, use packed in a lot of stuff, but you were like on such a terror there. I didn't want to interrupt you, but let me just, in case some people don't fully realize the pulse nightclub thing. Yeah, it was understandable. It goes to an explicitly LGBT club. Like, in other words, everybody knew, Oh yeah, that's the club you go to. You know, if you, if that's your uh, cup of tea, except the shooter, uh, you know, my understanding is what, like after the fact it was well-documented, you know, from people who knew him at the, you know, that night and what he was planning on doing. And then you say like his phone call and whatever that he, he was not going out of his way to go. He didn't realize that was a gay nightclub is what I'm getting at. Is that line up with what your research shows? Yeah. The research based on his uh, computer hard drive indicated that he was scoping out Disney world, but uh, determined that there was uh, too much security at Disney World. So he searched for the closest nightclub within uh, his geographical area and decided to go there. Yep. So it's it's funny. Like, again, it's it's so it might come off like we're trying to like say, so see, he's not that bad. <laughs> and of course, that's not what our point is whatsoever. Like, it's the other way around. It's like it's the leftists who make it so like, oh, yeah, he killed a bunch of people. But because he was a homophobe, that's really the issue here. You know, when it's like, no, the issue is he shot up a bunch of people. But but yeah, that that is funny. And just how unwilling, you know, like, in other words, you you would have to listen to certain uh, dissident news sources or comment podcasts to even know that. It's certainly not like it was, you know, front page news as far as I'm aware, where they were coming out on CBS and whatever and saying, hey, you know that Pulse nightclub? Phew, it turns out that wasn't a homophobic attack. He didn't even realize, you know, that was the nature of the nightclub. He was just trying to kill people because he was against U.S. foreign policy. That was never made clear to anybody unless, you know, you were already listening to dissident sources. Um, okay, yeah. Another thing with that Claudine Gay, just to... I, since you brought it up, because I, I, I had made a connection earlier with what you were saying, again, how how everything just has to fit that narrative. There was this, um, you know, so again, for folks who maybe this isn't on your radar, as Keith has been saying, so uh, there were the three university presidents. It was MIT, uh, was it UPenn and uh, Harvard, were called before Congress. And um, do you remember what the congresswoman's name was that – it was starts with the, it's like stuff and you know, I'm not going to get it quite right, but anyway, she was grilling them and you know, she was kind of being dramatic herself and she's, you know, playing to the camera and whatever. Everyone's, everyone's putting on a show obviously, but you know, asking them what is calling for genocide on your college campus, a violation of the anti-bullying, you know, student code of conduct. And they were unwilling to just say, yeah, of course you can't call for genocide of Jews. That's of course that would be construed as bullying. And, and again, and partly, in their defense, it's because people just chanting Intifada or from the river to the sea, Palestine, must be free. The pro IDF people are saying, Oh, what that means is they're calling for all Jews to be exterminated, which no, that's not the words they said. So I, I understand why this happened, but in any event, so now this Claudine gate was like now in the crosshairs of the conservative, right? And then it turns up, you know, they started digging up examples of her plagiarizing and some of it was, 
you know, things like she cited a paper and then took an exact quote, but didn't put quotation marks. So, you know, things like there, it's more like, yeah, you shouldn't do that. It's very sloppy. And the Harvard students would get in big trouble for doing that. But on those examples, you know, she wasn't literally trying to pass off other people's work as her own. It was just more incredibly sloppy. And then some people highlighted other ones that were more like, oh, no, she really was like not crediting people for taking their ideas. Fair enough. So I saw Keith, some lady on Twitter who was like an, an ex, like she's retired now, but she was a, a an English professor herself, PhD. And she was telling some story like, yes, that Claudine Gay is under fire, but you know, a long time ago, uh, I gave a seminar about, you know, some, some theory about Shakespeare interpretation and my, uh, the, the, the guy running the class, you know, the next day came in and had stolen my idea. You know, he read the thing for his paper and my, you know, my other classmates, the people in the program with me getting our PhDs were stunned. And then I went up to, you know, ask him about it after class and he just gave me a hug and she said in a very Trumpy fashion. And I was like, wait, that's a weird thing to say. And then it, it kept going on and on. And then he went left to go to, like, she kind of let it go. Like, okay, I'll let him steal this idea because he's going to be my dissertation advisor. And this guy was huge in the field. And, you know, she just made the cost benefit and said, okay, fine. I guess this is the dues you got to pay. But then he screwed her because he he left anyway to go work at Harvard. Okay, so she wasn't saying the guy's name, but people were figuring out who it had to have been. Like they could look at the timeline, and and she kept stressing, "I want to be clear, this is a giant in the field of you know Shakespeare uh, expert, blah blah blah." Okay, and so then you're wondering like where's she going with it? And I thought the point was she was trying to say, "Hey, let's not downplay these accusations against uh, the president of Harvard here." as the, some of the left leftist defenders of her were doing, like saying, oh, come on, this isn't really plagiarism. This is just, she was didn't cite properly, blah, blah. And she, you know, she's going through this tweet thread, and I thought her point was, no, plagiarism in academia is a big, no, that wasn't her point at all. She, the grand conclusion was, so if this white professor who totally ripped off my idea was allowed to get away with it, don't come to me with all your accusations against Claudine Gray for just, you know, her poor uh, sloppy citation, right? And she made it a white thing and she made it about Trump. And people were like, you're not defending the president of Harvard. I point out there was another English professor at Harvard who also was a big plagiarist. What are you talking about? And like trying to link it to Trump somehow, I went and looked the guy up and he literally had a book coming out, came out in like, I think 2018 that was saying like Shakespeare on tyranny and people said at the time, it didn't name Trump by name, but it was a thinly veiled critique of the Trump administration. So this idea that, no, there was this, he's an English professor at Harvard. Of course he hated Trump's guts, at least officially. And so yet this whole thing was her stand with, no, let's stop piling on this poor black woman because I know this incredible leftist white guy that stole my ideas 20 years ago. So clearly it's unfair. I, you know, and also too, last thing I'm, I've been talking about, the whole idea is like, wait a minute, your point is these hypocritical right-wing Republicans are unwilling to criticize an English professor at Harvard who has an anti-Trump book? No, I'm pretty sure they'd be willing to criticize him too. Just tell them what happened. And then, <laughs> you know, and, and by the way, it wasn't like she had lodged complaints and no one took her seriously. It's like she was saying, this is the first time I've spoken about this publicly because what I'm seeing happening to the poor beleaguered minority president of Harvard. I, again, you know, this was poor downtrodden member of society who was only the president of Harvard. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. They, they've completely thrown out uh, economic Marxism and it seems like cultural Marxism is, uh, is almost front and center. And think of how uh, unfortunate this is, even for those people, of course, vilifying all whites, I think is uh, terrible and that's egregious on its own count. But you're not even helping the people who you claim to be helping. Imagine raising a boy and telling him that the world is against him. And we know this because men have lower life expectancies. Men pay more for car insurance. Men pay more for life insurance. And you're much more likely to get killed by the police as a man. So the world is just against you. And there's basically nothing you can do until we have a radical change of the political system, which you basically have more or less no control over. That was another great thing that Roland Fryer did, the guy who uh, Claudine Gay got in trouble. He had a paper 
talking about uh, Black culture and whether or not there is a disincentive within Black culture to do well in school. And the studies came out and said, nope, uh, this is just a uh, white person myth. And Roland Fryer said, well, let's look at this a different way. Instead of saying, hey, you have good grades, are you popular? He said, well, it turns out asking a high school kid that is the equivalent of asking him, are girls attracted to you? Yes, turns out they all say yes. So Roland Fryer had a totally different method to determine whether or not education is valued among this demographic, which is pretty important. You can tell, you know, Southerners tend to, on average, not value education the way Northerners do. So you see a disparity between Northerners and Southerners. Well, it turns out in this demographic as well, Roland Fryer had gone to each student and said, who are your two closest friends? And he was able to find in the data that the better kids' uh, grades were, the fewer friends they had. In other words, they were actually less popular. And doing a lot of reading, doing your homework, and all this stuff was seen as acting white. So this guy just had to be taken down. This is a guy who's actually helping in the academic field instead of constantly dividing the races for absolute nonsense. There's no reason whites should, you know, have something against Asians because Asians have a significantly higher income or longer life expectancy, even though they come here sometimes barely knowing any English and their uh, income surpass whites. All of these things are totally fake, totally evil. They not just hurt the people that you're vilifying, but you're not helping the people who you claim to be fighting on behalf of. Uh yeah, yeah, well said. So what do you think how do you how do you see this progressing? I'm just curious because it's obviously you you are have a good command of both the big picture but also a lot of these of details. So I'm just curious like you looking at the US let me give you my I don't see how this gets fixed and that's why I just started openly supporting secession you know, I was always, in, you know, in terms of principles, like, yeah, if some group of people want to break away, of course they have the the natural right to do that. But it wasn't like I was a big secession guy in the past, but in the last few years, like I wrote a pamphlet on uh, an independent Texas, for example, just because I don't, I don't see actually how to avoid a civil war. You know, people say, oh, secession would lead to it. And to me, it's the other way around at this point. I don't, so I'm just curious what, not, you don't have to necessarily answer, talk about secession, but I'm just saying in general, how do you feel about U.S. culture at this point and these different groups who are clearly uh, not getting along? I think it's so divisive and it is extremely dangerous. That's why I was so appreciative of someone like Javier Malay using this Rothbardian populist strategy in order to gain massive amounts of popularity in Argentina. So Thomas Sowell famously said that it's not that these issues are so hard to understand. It's that people don't want to understand them. There's the myth of the rational voter. It takes so long to get educated on any topic, let alone all the political topics, that instead of doing that, people just use shortcuts. They find heroes to admire and villains to hate. So I think it's our role to really change the false divide instead of black versus white or American versus Russian to change it from the parasites in the world who achieve their ends with fraud or violence and the great innovators of the world. We have tons of people who we can appreciate. I was reading about George Eastman, who, while he didn't invent the camera, was able to make it so the average person had access to a camera on them at all times through things like uh, the free market of innovation, trying new things, selling the product in the voluntary sector, and achieving great deals of wealth. So we can have heroes as well, put them on pedestals, and hopefully they uh, will sort of control the uh, cultural narrative after uh, something like that. People like Henry Ford, making cars accessible to the average person, even though he didn't uh, invent the car, drastically decreasing the cost. People like Vanderbilt doing this with railroads and steamships as well. These are people, uh, Jeff Bezos, I think, is someone else we can uh, generally admire for his uh, great contributions to society. So uh, because we can have heroes to admire, that means we do have a cultural launching point, so to speak, as to uh, whether or not we can actually affect the culture in uh, in the long run. So there definitely is a possibility. People like Javier Malay have uh, shown us that, uh, th that that's reasonable, uh, along with uh, people like Ron Paul. Now, whether or not I think this is going to happen, well, the human mind is uh, t tends to be geared towards pessimism because something bad can kill you, whereas something great can make your life a little bit better. So I'm uh, I'm not sure if I could accurately judge, but 
right now, I just think it's so terrible that I thought, hey, the best I could do is go on shows, write a book, make the PDF free, and hopefully people will uh, be able to uh, see this change. Okay. Well, well great. Uh, it's funny you mentioned it. I grew up in Rochester, New York, and that's where, you know, the headquarters of Kodak and the people, you can go still see the Eastman house. You know, he had a, he had a pretty nice place. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So can you, uh, hold the book up for those who are watching the video again, so we can see the, the handsome cover. So domestic imperialism, these are my, the, who I think are just the five worst, uh, political leaders that I have come across. It's Woodrow Wilson, getting us into the First World War, 2.8 million conscripts, 116,000 deaths, no apology. Franklin Roosevelt, intentionally uh, provoking the Pearl Harbor incident with the Japanese Export Control Act of 1940. Lyndon Johnson, faking the Gulf of Tonkin incident of August 4th, 1964. And then Bernie and AOC today, constantly dividing people off everything arbitrary that you can think of. AOC went as far as to say, look at what happened to my abuela's house in Puerto Rico. Trump needs to pass this law. To which Matt Walsh of the Daily Wire said, okay, Tesla owner, Congresswoman of America, you're not going to help your abuela out. We're going to raise $100,000. And they did. And AOC's campaign got a hold of GoFundMe and said, we won't be accepting the funds. That really differentiates someone who's wrong or hasn't looked at the numbers with someone acting nefariously. I think those are the great villains of uh, progressivism. That's why I put them on the cover. You, you know, I had, that had been on my radar, that, that story, but I didn't realize that that was the ending of it, that, that they raised the money and then she wouldn't accept it. Matt Walsh of the Daily Wire. Mm. Yes. He, uh, he, he has uh, all of the uh, receipts on this. Wow. Okay. And also too, you, you mentioned FDR, among other things, internment camps for the Japanese Americans, you know, that that's kind of like, oh yeah, th he did that. But you know, <laughs> whereas it's because yeah. he, well, he's a Democrat and, you know, he uh, set up social security and the SEC and, and whatnot. So yeah, he's cool. Um, okay. Well, that my guest folks has been Keith Knight. Keith, thanks so much for your time and for uh, giving us this book and making it free. But of course, folks, you can also buy buy it and uh, contribute to the Libertarian Institute if you're so moved. So thanks again, Keith, for your time. Bob, thank you for having me. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.